Give me six hours to chop down a tree, and I will spend the first four sharpening the axe. This powerful quote by Abraham Lincoln is often shared by our guest. Jason Ye has spent a lot of time both on fundraising and analyzing fundraisers. After working as an investor at Graycroft, starting a business and being acquired, he became Silicon Valley Bank's go-to executive coach around fundraising. And too many times, he saw the negative impact that lack of preparation has, not only for the business, but for the founder's confidence and ability to deal with rejection. A lot of them needed more effective processes. That's why last year, he launched Adamant Ventures, a firm dedicated to making fundraising easier and accessible. Today, he shares concepts like calendar density and purity of motivation, besides actionable tips to help you sharpen your axe. Stick around to learn some intricacies about investor psychology, guidelines to develop your narrative, how to rebalance the power dynamics between investors and founders, and his views on pre-money versus post-money safes. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. This is fun. I guess we're podcasters, apparently. Yeah. Um, so. Podcaster, <laughs> bud. Yeah. Podcaster, bud. Not sure how that happened, but um, you've been a, a great supporter of our community and one of the more popular sessions that we've done. I think that you definitely blew some minds with your, your session on fundraising. And you've talked to our, our Latitude Fellows a lot about setting up a fundraising process that includes lots of preparation. I think there's a quote that you have from Abraham Lincoln. Talk about calendar density and, and why it's important. Sure. Uh, lots to chew off. I mean, I think the, the quote I love sharing, and it's pretty funny to be sharing an Abraham Lincoln quote with a Latino South American uh, cohort of entrepreneurs, but the quote is given six hours to cut down a tree, I would spend the first four hours sharpening my ax. I like applying that to fundraising because I think too many founders, when they start getting into fundraising, um, believe like they understand the concept of what raising funds is. It's asking people for money. What they don't realize is that when you start peeling back the layers around startup fundraising, it's like this network of of interesting terms that don't make sense to processes to people that you have to meet. And by by jumping into a fundraise without preparing, you really set yourself up for, if not full failure, um, at least extended pain. And so um, what I tell people is half of what we're trying to do when we get ready for a fundraise is get comfortable with what you're about to do and really build up a level of confidence that gets supported by doing a ton of work ahead of time, making sure that you have a lot of options, and then creating a set of circumstances to optimize your chances of closing around. And one of the concepts that I'm always um, preaching about and certainly did with your community was this idea of doing all the preparation you can to drive towards something called what I call calendar density. So we're glazing over a lot of details, but essentially people will have heard different ways of describing this, but People are trying to set up first meetings where uh, there are a bunch of meetings all scheduled within the same one or two weeks on a calendar. And I call that achieving calendar density. There are a lot of reasons why this is really powerful. One is uh, you are trying to create a situation where investors can feel the fact that they are not the only game in town. I think where the power dynamic shifts or the power dynamic is is imbalanced in favor of investors is when they believe that they get to evaluate you on their own terms and wait for more information. So what I tell people is that given the chance, if an investor 
has an opportunity to see the next card, you know, a poker analogy of seeing the next card, uh, they'll always wait. They will always ask, and you know what, like, looks like you're doing well, Brian, come back and let us know when you hit this, let us know when you hit that. But the moment they feel like there are other people that could take the deal away from them, uh, the dynamic really shifts. So, so calendar density gives you an opportunity to shift that dynamic. And the second thing that I, I really like pointing out is fundraising is a confidence game, right? We are trying to project an understanding and a belief in yourself that investors pick up on. So they believe that you are the, the person to actually bring this to the promised land. And um, one of the more difficult things can be dealing with rejection and no's during the course of a fundraise. And if you set up meetings where it's like one meeting this week and the next meeting happens next week, when you get rejected, as you probably will in that very first meeting, Brian, that's going to feel really bad. And you're going to spend the next week thinking about like, why did VC, the VC reject me? What should I do differently? And then by the time you get into the next meeting, you're kind of in your head and you're trying to fix things that probably don't need to be fixed. Whereas if I help a founder set up calendar density and they have three or four meetings a day for the next five to 10 days, that first rejection, you won't even have time to think about it because and you won't care because like we'll talk you through it. Rejections mean nothing. Like I got 30, 40, 50 rejections before getting my term sheet. I'm sure you went through many, many rejections before you, you, know, you got your investing rounds. And when you have that calendar density, you can go into it confidently being like, that investor, Jason, said no. He had no idea what he was talking about. His loss going to the next one because the next one is coming up in one hour. So anyways, lots to talk about around calendar density and the different dynamics there. But you know, those are the first two that come to mind when I, when I try to set people on the right path. Just so you know, I was at a, a little event. Uh, I went to a little party in Miami recently, like oh, I guess everybody else. And uh, a founder came up to me because I had quoted your calendar density thing mm. uh, maybe on another episode. And he came up to me, he was a Colombian entrepreneur. And he's like, man, calendar density. He's like, <laughs> he's like Jason, this, this guy, he's got a good way of describing things. And it's important to have those concepts that allow founders to really kind of latch onto it. And when, when you mentioned the kind of the confidence factor, you mentioned the, the no's. I had over 30 no's also, right? And you start kind of the mental game, right? If you think of sports, right? You're playing tennis, you're playing basketball. It's like, I'm going to miss his next shot. The moment you have that doubt, like, you know, Steph Curry is like, he thinks he's making everything. Like there's yes. just no doubt yes. when, he, when he's playing, fill in the blank, the athlete top of their game. And so, you know, having that, that ability to kind of put that next shot on goal and having that right around that option, it'll give you that confidence. And so that, that totally makes sense. So how did you deal with the no's in the past? What's the recommendation there when you do get a no? Because I mean, you start doubting yourself, right? Which is what you don't want to do. Yeah. I think I, I had an irrational confidence in my, in my ability to get stuff done. Looking back on it, I'm like, man, I really should not have had that. I should not have been that confident given how I did things. Whether it's an irrational set of confidence or, or just the preparation and the iteration around your own story to know like, look, there is a reason my company exists. And I know why I'm the founder to do this. It's some really touchy-feely, crystally self-work that you have to do around why you start a company. Like, I usually set founders on this path of doing like this worksheet, worksheet, which I'm happy to share with your audience. I call it my purpose and drive worksheet, where it's like you're asking yourself the hard questions of like, why are you doing this business? 
are you doing it for the right reasons? Are you ready to go and get this done? Like, is this a company that you're doing because of external validation that you want to be a startup founder because people want, you know, think that you should be a startup founder or is it something that you really, really want to do? And if you can come to terms with that, I think that confidence starts generating itself and sort of feeding off of itself. So that's the first thing I would say. And then the second thing I'd say is is understanding that you have a very specific narrative and you should have a very specific narrative that won't be for everyone. I think that's something else that I tell people. You're, I want you to have a very specific story that won't be for everyone and that's okay. Allows you to go into meetings and hear no's and be like, that person didn't get it. That person wasn't for me. All right, let's move on to the next one. I think that realization is really powerful because um, one of the mistakes I see founders make a lot is that they want everyone to love them. They want everyone to like them. And so the mistake you'll see is that they will start with a story and start, mo- start modifying the story to try to make it like lightly interesting to everyone. They might take a meeting with Brian and Brian's like, you know what? kind of like what you're doing, but really the subscription model is kind of what you should be thinking about. So they step away from that. They're like, okay, well, the next time I pitch, I'm going to say these things and maybe I'll throw out subscription because Brian said he would like subscription. And so you you tell this variation of your story that adds subscription and the next person's like, oh, that's kind of cool too. Um, But you know, you're going full B2B, like, have you thought about B2C at all? You're like, okay, well, you know, and so you start Frankensteining this diluted version of your story because you want you want to like lay traps for people to get lightly interested and what i tell people is they end up by trying to be everything to everyone they water everything down you become lightly copacetic to every investor that you see but you become not that interesting to the fount to the investor that has been looking for like a very specific vision so like i actually tell people like the other way to get confidence is that you're looking for the investor that is trying to think like you. You're not trying to be everything to everyone. And that means you're going to go and run into a lot of no's and that's okay. I think building yourself up and getting ready for no's is one of those ways that you sort of generate the confidence that is necessary to get through it. I love the fact of it's authentic too, right? Like, I mean, what do you really believe? Where's your conviction lie, right? Because the investor can like just, they can smell from a mile away when you're just like to serve them up something, right? And yeah. it's just in Portuguese, they say brilho no olho. Like you can see the sparkling eyes of the founder that's just like, this is what I'm doing. I'm going after it. And then there's just like this deep conviction. And so I think if you're trying to adapt, of course, there's certain things that you say that might resonate and you can take note of those in yeah. terms of like, but I think there's a difference between like a thesis on how to build the business and then like statements that land. Right. And so I totally uh, agree with that. You know, yeah, I'll say one really quick thing. Well, two quick things. Part of like trying to figure out if you have the confidence in your in your business might lead you to not do your business. <laughs> and that's happened before with me and somebody a founder. Like, and I think that's like the best thing could that could happen to somebody is that they start doing this work and trying to prepare. And they're like, Am I doing this the right re- for the right reasons? Or is this something that I have the conviction in that's necessary to get through a fundraise? So that's one thing. And then two, um, you spoke about the the Portuguese term. We actually had a, a live session for my my class and a guest speaker came on, um, Sara Zayani, the general partner at uh, Global Founder Capital. And we were talking about this concept of the passion that she's looking for in founders. And she shared this term that I'm going to start using all the time. And I hope you, know, you can use it too. Attribute it to me. 
And then, <laughs> no, but it, it, Sarah actually said she heard it from another uh, investor. But the, the point of view from the investor she talked about is like, I'm looking for purity of motivation. And I love that term. It's like, they're like kind of looking at the founder and looking for that brilliance in their eyes or like purity of motivation. Like why, why is Brian doing this business? And like, do I believe that he's doing it for the reasons that will push him through the hard times that will make him figure out the answers that will like have him continue going. So like purity of motivation to me is the way investors see this idea of passion. I describe passion to a founder and I'm like, I want you to be passionate the way it's perceived by investors. I think a lot of times it's like looking for that purity of motivation. It's a very, very concise way of describing like the, the true purpose as from the investor side it's like, there's a lot of ways to make money. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's going to be hard no matter what, if you have the purity of motivation and you come across something difficult, you're going to climb that wall, you're going to scale it, or you're going to find a way around it. Right. You know, I was talking to a founder today and he's wrapped up in this really interesting fundraising process and he's building a bank kind of FinTech for the Latino market in the U S right. Which he comes from this community. He grew up pretty poor and not with a lot of resources. And he's, extremely motivated to kind of like build this next generation company that's going to empower kind of financially, financial inclusion for this segment of the population. And you can just see the fire in his eyes, right? And so that purity of motivation, and I think it resonates with investors because they know that you're going to keep charging no matter what. Sure. Let's uh, switch gears a little bit and get to the tactics, right? <laughs> um, you know, you'd mentioned a little bit of the sharpening of the, of the axe. So let's go into a little bit more about first steps of having an effective fundraising process. Yeah. So, you know, I think about three phases for any sort of fundraise that people need to focus on. I sort of added this fourth one. So preparing, I talked about a little bit about purpose and drive, but like standing back and kind of understanding why you're doing things is really important. And that can be done as solo work, I think, in your, on your own, really like self-reflection. Um, but also can be done, and I encourage people to have conversations with people that have been there before, mentors like yourself, Brian, and, and kind of like just picking apart why you're doing this business. And once you can get to that answer, we'll then go into really developing out your narrative, right? So I think there's a lot to be said about working and iterating through a narrative, but I think the thing that founders need to know is that uh, the story is everything. Um, I, what I tell people is whether you're on the back of a napkin or your Series C company with you know a few years of numbers. Numbers are interesting, but none of the numbers you you tell me can be extrapolated to infinity and forever. And so everything that wraps around the story is super important. So look, I think uh, a few tactics I'd share specifically around narrative development is I think less is more. You'll you'll see a ton of different things on the internet around perfect number of slides. Docsend actually, Docsend, who I partner with on a lot of different things, they're very data-driven. They will tell you the perfect deck is something like 18 or 19 slides. That's what the data tell, tell them. I believe that founders should try to go for 10 slides or less as like a goal. It doesn't mean that you're going to get there, but I, I really encourage founders to say, Try to tell your story in a way that hits you around 10, 10 slots. If you had to add to go to 11 or 12, that's fine. But like have the goal of getting to something like 10 slides. A red flag for me is if a founder can't tell their story in a compelling way, 
intense lads. Like it kind of means you're overselling, you're reaching, you're trying to like describe every little interesting thing about your business to catch someone's eye. When if you really know why you you exist in this world, if you really know why your company is important, you can do that in 10 slides. So that's one thing. And then the other tactical thing around narrative deck and deck that I'll share just so I don't, I would look, we could spend five hours on narrative deck. But the other thing I'd say is people will read about the 12 slides you need in a deck or like the things you need to say. And, and you'll see like problem, solution, why now, vision, business model, like a lot of different things. And I kind of cringe at very prescriptive direction around narrative and deck creation because I, I just think every story is different. Every story requires a different lead in to how things like are presented in a way that an investor will really consume. And so what I challenge people is I call it like the four features of a deck. There are four things that I think you really, really need. I think you need to describe that there is a problem or a need. I think you need to describe the solution. I think you need to describe that this is a big idea. And I think you need to describe that you are the team, that your team will be successful in doing those things. Now, those aren't four slides. Those are four things that need to come across in your deck. It could take you three slides to describe your problem. It could take you three slides to like talk through a solution. The idea that like, you know, there are things like vision and why now, like, those are interesting slides. And I don't, I'm not saying those shouldn't be there, but like, it doesn't have to be so prescriptive as long as you're able to cover in some sort of organization of slides, those four features. The fifth optional one that I tell people about, this is just my pet peeve, doesn't need to be in there. I, I don't I don't need to call it out, but I kind of hate when I read a deck and I actually don't know what stage of the company is. Like I'm like, okay, this is a really fancy deck. Have you been around for 10 years? Did you even launch this product? I really hate that. So don't obfuscate where you are. That's just my personal pet peeve. So I'll, I'll pause right there so we don't we don't t- overtake the whole <laughs> podcast on just talking about narrative and deck. But those are two tactical things I think you can take. Uh, away. No, I mean we can we can always have you back, man. Uh, you've got a <laughs> lot of a lot of knowledge. I, I like going deep uh, rather than wide. So a pet peeve for me is seeing like a big list of advisors, right? <laughs> company like that's that's like to me is an instant like. Do these people invest in your company? Or are you yeah. like just handing out equity and what's the deal? Yeah. That's, that's a classic kind of mistake of a, a rookie mistake. Don't hide uh, behind names. You know, don't don't yeah. hide. <laughs> if 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 you're gonna put an advisor, they better well be able to like jump on the phone with me tomorrow. You know? Yeah, exactly. And 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 they better be world class. I love this the advice on the on the slides. That's let's just summarize. I mean, simple is better, less is more. Try to distill it down into a balsamic reduction sauce. Yeah. I mean, I think like, look, I, I kind of point people to YC has some materials on how to create a deck. I actually think it's a bit misleading because YC talks about how they create decks and how they push their founders to create decks. If you've been to YC Demo Day, I mean, Brian, you've probably been to a couple. I've been to a few. Their decks are like one word per slide. They have this framework where it's like, you need to be able to communicate to the people in the back of the room. So there's nothing on the slide. I think they go a little far. I think they go a little bit far in simplicity because they can, right? Because, and by the way, your community probably will be able to draft off of the brand of Latitude, if not already very soon. But like when you read Y, when you read YC's uh, description of how decks are, it is so bare bones simplified because if you are a YC company, you can do that. You get to draft off of this 
the brand value of YC and people then lean into wanting to learn more. So that's, that's something that they do get right that I share with people. And you know, just throw this other thing is that like people make the mistake of, of thinking that their deck is going to close the investment. Like it needs to show every little thing because like they're going to look at this and then invest. The deck is really just the tip of the iceberg, right? It's the ability, it's the first thing, it's the, it's the entree into who you are so that they will spend more time with you and then make the full decision to invest. So, um, you know, that's, that's what you'll see with YC is that these, these incredibly simple decks and you're like, well, it's YC and the basic story was interesting. I think I'm going to spend more time here babbling on about simplicity, but no, no, simple no, no. is better. I, I, like it's worth emphasizing, man. Yeah. I mean, I see decks that come in just like this crazy monster of slides of text all over the place. And yeah. it's just like, I, I don't get through it. Like, I mean, you look at Duxen's data, I'm sure people just next, next, next. They just don't, they don't spend the time on it. Three minutes a deck. That's kind of the average. Three minutes a deck. I mean, like that's nothing, right? And something to your point is a lot of inexperienced founders think that you're walking into VC or on Zoom and you're like, and you're walking them through each slide. And like, I've never closed a deal <laughs> with me presenting the deck. Like it just, it's always a conversation, right? Give me your thoughts on that. And is that just me or is that what you're seeing in most cases? So there's a lot of conversation around this. A lot of founders will come to me and they'll say like, I don't like decks. I don't present well around decks. And I'm like, okay, let's still create a deck for a couple of reasons. The deck is also the slide-by-slide representation of your narrative, which I've told you is kind of what you're selling. There are a few points about the deck that make it valuable, whether or not you hate decks. The first is that it can be sent around, right? Like um, I'm always trying to drive towards meetings that without sending the deck in, in the first place, because it means that the investor is like, has some other reason to be spending time with you. But you will always get some investors that need to see the deck. So you want your deck perfect. You know, we want a great deck that you can send out. Second, um, I think a lot of founders sort of believe their ability to pitch without structure behind them is way overblown. They're like, I, I don't do well like presenting against the deck. I'm so much better naturally. I'm like, all right, pitch me, you know? And we start, we start going through it. And I'm like, yeah, like. Not following you. <laughs> not, not yeah. You're kind of rambling on this direction. You're not. You're not driving towards points that are going to be important. I think you should have some structure around you. And so what I tell people is like, you don't need to be like Brian. All right, slide one. Let me tell you about slide one. Slide two. Let me tell you about slide two. Like, let's go through this deck together. But it can be really powerful to have the deck. Some some great founders have said like. I send a deck and I want them to read it beforehand. And then I want to have a conversation about it. And when I start my presentation or when I start my pitch or, or, or Zoom meeting, I'm like, hey, do you have the deck up? Okay, good. I just, I want to make sure that you have it in case we need to refer to it. But let me just tell you a little bit about, you know, Adamant Ventures. I, I want to tell you about where I came from and where it started. And the fact that the deck exists or that the deck could be screen shared when you needed to, or that you could say, hey, like... I don't know if you have it in front of you, but like slide four, where, where we have the market, like that's what you really need to focus on. There's something really powerful about having the organization structure of a deck around a pitch that one allows you to, if you stumble because you're just like, oh my God, like for whatever reason, I'm you know, star, starstruck by talking to Brian, you can be like, all right, like look at the deck and kind of, it'll set you back. It'll like snap you back. And I think having that crutch no matter how good you are, you're going to have bad days. You're going to have 
you're gonna have days when you had five back-to-back pitches and the fifth one is going to be terrible or it's going to be much worse than your first and you're going to need a crutch. And the other thing is like, look, I'm a big fan of appendices. I'm a big fan of what I tell people is five meetings in, you'll probably get 80% of the good hard questions that you could get in a pitch. And I always want my founders after they have a really tough question to come back home and be like, all right, how do I answer that question? Great. In fact, I want you to create a slide that is like, this is my perspective on this question. And that's going to go in your appendix. Uh, And so the other enhancement part of a deck is even if you're not presenting against it, if you go, well, you know what? Like, I, I don't know how Latitude competes with YC when YC is going global or on deck. And you're like, oh, that's really interesting that you say that. I have a slide that I want to share. Like, if you just go to this, it like will blow people's minds that you've been so thoughtful about these things. So five five uh, pitches in, you'll have covered like eighty percent of questions, and honestly, by eight or nine, you'll have ninety five percent of all questions you'll ever get that are, are worth spending time on. So, a few things, thoughts on decks. I'm, I'm a fan. Couldn't be uh, more spot on. I, I just went through a fundraising process with another company that I co-founded and I'm in a kind of an exec chair role and we did a bunch of pitches and it was like exactly what you said. Like literally all the same questions, they, they all mm-hmm. surfaced in the matter of like the first week. We sat down, we like then crafted responses to those questions that we got, multiple repeat questions. And then we just like tightened up the narrative so that we were more concise. And I mean, people don't treat it like a sales process, but you should. I mean, there's kind of questions and answers and you get objections and you get you know, people have perceptions about what you're doing. So tightening this up is, is so important. And I, and I love what you say, because when an investor asks something and you're like, oh, hold on, let's actually check out the slide because this kind of responds to your question. Yeah. And then it's respect, right? Because you're also caring about their time. You're showing how thoughtful you were. And so I think that's really, really good advice for founders. And uh, you get this with calendar density, right? Because then you get really good and you get you get better at the process when you're, you're kind of pushing it all together. Um, Inevitably, there's, you know, oftentimes founders have certain skill sets. Is this like a divide and conquer situation? Is it a, is this the CEO's job only? Should you bring your co-founders when you're pitching? How do you think about that? I'm glad you didn't say what your thoughts are, because I don't know where this lands with most investors, but I believe that the CEO's job is one of the main jobs of a CEO, a startup CEO in particular is to keep the company capitalized. Like that is a skill set that is super important. And so by and large, I think it's the CEO's job. There are co-founders to a business for sure. Being a really successful team is dividing and conquering around everything that happens within a company, fundraising being one of those things. And then having both the humility and confidence in each other to let people lead and let people do the things that they're supposed to do. I would say in most cases, not all, uh, in most cases, when you see teams of co-founders coming to pitch meetings, it's an ego problem. It's uh, people feeling like they're part of the story too. They want to be there. And so broad strokes descriptions, I mostly think it's the CEO's job and that the CEO should, should be doing it mostly on her own. There are situations where there's a really complementary dynamic that is worth sharing with the founder and that dynamic needs to be brought up to the forefront. And that's a case-by-case basis. I can't really give you a rubric or description of what that is, but in those cases, I, I get why that happens. And then, you know, sometimes deeper into a process when a more technical point of view or like 
you know, diligence is being done live where you need your technical co-founder that that thing's that thing makes sense. But, um, I think it's from the start, it should be the CEO doing it. And by the way, that's kind of the CEO protecting her co-founders time, right? Like fundraising takes so much time to do well and the company still needs to be run. Like product needs to be put out, stuff needs to get done. So like the CEO needs to be, you know, shielding, her co-founders around stuff like fundraising, which is just super time consuming and doesn't move the, the company forward. All it does is move capitalization forward, which is you know, his or her job. In my book, I read the number one job as a CEO is just don't round out of money, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's your number one job. So, I mean, this is a big part of it. And not to be boring here, but I agree with you. I think that there's circumstances, right, where you know you may, depending on the type of company, if it's there's some kind of very deep technical thing that is an absolutely critical part of the business, and there is a sequence of things, right? You probably it's a second or third meeting, maybe uh, you might bring in you know some kind of deep reinforcement, and eventually the investor is going to want to meet all the founders, but you've got to line up everybody first, and you've got to get kind of that initial interest, and then there's going to be deeper diligence. So I agree that. The only thing I would disagree with is maybe for like a pre-seed company um, where you don't have a product yet, you probably want all the founders pitching because you need the money to build the product. And so you might as well put yourself to good use. That's the only kind of difference of opinion, but these are all kind of stage-oriented questions. So it's hard to have a swath of all scenarios uh, thrown into one. Now, um, let's talk about psychology because this is a fascinating topic for me. I feel like the best entrepreneurs and founders that are successful, they oftentimes just deeply understand just the investor psychology. 100%. I wish founders had a better grasp of that. What's our kind of psych 101 for, for investor world? It's why the, the first session in my course is founder mindset and investor psychology. I think it's they are the first principles that drive everything tactically that you do as a, as an elite fundraiser. So I'm glad that you, you pointed this out and like, um, so that it doesn't feel so hand wavy. Like what I would say is Brian, you've been in sales. I I assume, I think you've been in sales. Maybe not for me. I was 19. I had a six month job as a telemarketer. That's the only Okay. Well, so you probably, I mean, you've probably gotten some of the sales pitching, but, um, when I'm going through the module, like I'll bring someone on stage or I'll bring someone up to talk to me and I'll say like, have, have you gotten the sales interview questions, sell me this pen. Brian, here's a pen. Sell me this pen. What would you start doing? Actually, I'm gonna, I want to run you through this, see what you do. Man, it's been a long time. I would definitely talk about the output of the pen uh, versus the features of the pen. I would describe the beautiful letter that it writes. And this is a perfect pen for calligraphy if you're into... you know, I'll, I'll pause you there because you missed... You see, most people miss this, but actually what they would... What great sales training does is they say like, you should actually go, if I were to sell you this pen, I'd be like, oh, okay. So I have this pen. Tell me a little bit more about latitude. Like what does latitude do? How are you guys taking notes at latitude? You start asking questions because elite salespeople understand the buyer psychology. They understand why buyers are making decisions. They, They get into the mind of the buyer. And the buyer in this case is the investor. The investor is buying the product, which is the narrative, which is the investment in the company. And um, it's it's really hard to do as a founder because the only way to really know it really well is if you were an investor yourself. Um, so we spend a lot of time trying to unlock that understanding of, of what are the motivations of an investor. And you know, if I were to give someone 
whoever is listening to this podcast some homework, I'd, I'd say, you know, some of the homework that I give my students are go to Bessemer's open source memos and read those memos, disregard everything that has to do with numbers and just like read the, like the sort of subjective qualitative stuff that they, that they read, that they write about how they make decisions. Like some of that is really interesting, but like, yes, at the end of the day, you really want to get better at understanding the motivations of investors so that you can more creatively problem solve when it comes to engaging with investors, communicating with them, planning things out. Tactically speaking, I would say the two biggest things I always drive towards that I like share with founders are there, there are two bits of psychology, two feelings that drive almost everything that we do in terms of tactics. The first is the idea of how powerful it is to feel like you're catching a deal as an investor and missing a deal. Those are the two things that drive almost everything. And what I tell people is like, look, we're going to look for investors. We, we understand that there are some investors that are driven by the crowd that are quote unquote ambulance chasers. They like, they they'll go where everyone's going. And those people can be manipulated way more. Then you'll look at the top tier, top tier of conviction based investors. You look at Sequoia, Greylock benchmark, those investors don't need to hear from anyone else and they will make a call. You know, they won't look at is Brian investing is Jason investing. If they're investing, maybe I'll invest. They will make a call based on their own conviction. That said, they're still human. They are still human. It doesn't matter how elite you are or how top tier you are. The investor psychology around seeing things or hearing things that make them feel like they caught a deal, caught a deal early, because by by the way, the top tier is still competing against the other top tier funds. So if I'm Sequoia, is Greylock looking at it? Is Andreessen looking at it? Did I catch a deal before them? And the other one is like, am I missing a deal? Like, God, like this is a space or I'm talking to this company. And if I say no to them, other people are, want them. Like that feeling is so powerful. So if you can like really deconstruct that and understand those two things, it will kind of lead you in the right path for, for most other decisions around how you engage with investors. Catching a deal and missing a deal. So if we were to kind of, since we're talking about psychology, would you break this down to fear and greed? Before I describe, I think it's mostly greed. I think, uh, I guess I think it's greed. And greed. I guess it's greed. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the reason I mean, like the other thing I do is I walk people through a really like investor one on one basics because I want them to know what the business model is, why investors make decisions, how they make decisions, and when you realize that this is a home runs driven business, like they don't care if it's a pretty good deal. They're like, I need to catch the one grand slam, you know, like the one just crazy outlier. And you're looking at every deal and you're like, oh man, is Brian's company? Is it Brian? Is it Jason? Every deal, it'll eat you up alive if you're an investor because you're like, oh my, like saying no is like kind of painful because you're like, oh man, I could have, maybe I said no to the next XYZ unicorn. And once you know that, that's what you're going to start really, really leaning into. Yeah. The cost of missing the big winner is infinite, right? I mean- Right. Versus the cost of- investing and, and missing, you know, you're, exactly. you need to be as an investor, you need to be, you need to be super comfortable swinging in a miss, swinging a miss, fully whiffing just so you can get to that, you know, that grand slam. There was a founder that I spoke with the other day that said he started changing his pitch to like, instead of reducing certainty on the opportunity to invest, but increasing the possibility of a home run. I liked that because it's kind of counterintuitive, right? You're as an entrepreneur, you're like, and no, listen, this, this is a good chance. It's going to work out. 
you know what? It's not a huge chance going to work out, but there's a real chance there that this is. That's this super huge. interesting. So I like the way he framed that because I thought that it was a smart way because entrepreneurs intuitively don't do that because they want to reduce risk for the investor. But investors are, they want to invest. They want to take a swing at it and they know that not everything is going to pan out. I, I haven't thought about that a lot. I, I love that. I need to, I need to spend more time thinking about that. Yeah. So, the, so you mentioned, so these two things, it's catching a deal and then not missing a deal. You know, you wrote something recently that got a lot of attention about this shift to post money caps since YC introduced post money, you know, safes expand on that because I, I, this came up with me yesterday and we have a term sheet and we kind of the investor flipped it from a pre money to a post money. And then kind of did the math on it. And wow, this, this actually changes things. So talk about posts that you did and then share your perspective on things. It's super interesting. So I was an investor, a full-time investor at Graycroft Partners in Los Angeles from 2012 to almost 2017. And during that time, went from mostly equity investments at almost any stage to then the rise of the convertible note to like the end of my time, YC came up with their safe, their securitized agreement for equity. I think that's what a safe stands for. That was game changing for founders. It really was. It, like, it fixed all the things that convertible, the problems convertible notes had. It really put power back. I thought it put a lot more power back in, into entrepreneurs' hands. I, I, I thought it was like a cleaner way to get things done more quickly. And then I went away. Like I could have stepped away from the investing game for a while and the fundraising game for a, a while. Like, I, I did two tours of duty at start, you know, being early or a founder of a startup. And when I got back and decided to spend time essentially helping founders with fundraising uh, was the first time I started hearing this concept of a post-money safe and a post-money cap. And I was just really interested. I, I, like I started, first of all, the first thing I, I noticed was like people wouldn't, they just say like X dollar cap, like a $10 million cap, $15 million cap. And then like I started looking at the docs and, and reading this idea of a post-money cap and the first time I saw it, I thought, I actually thought an investor was trying to like really pull one over on, on a, on a founder. And I was like, Oh, F this, like, don't let this happen. Like I, I see what they're trying to do here. And they're like, no, no, no it's, it's, it's standard. It's from YC. And it, I was like, no way is this standard from YC. Cause like YC has been such a champion for, for founders. And, and that's why they created, the, I, th- I think that's why they created the original, original pre-money cap safe. But sure enough, went to the YC's uh, website and now they push the post-money cap safe. So my thoughts on it are a couple of things. I had this back and forth with a very close investor friend of mine who like really took the opposite side of things, was really like post-money caps are great. It's, it provides clarity. So the, the main thing that a post-money cap does that everyone, that the people in support of it want to really champion is this idea that if you're raising, if you're investing $2 million on a post-money cap of 10, two things, you can do really easy math, two divided by 10 is what you own. And that you know that you own two divided by 10, no matter what happens leading up to the first the first equity round that's raised. So a lot of different things can happen. Other notes can be raised, different caps, et cetera. But the way the post-money cap is written, you will always own two out of 10 until the next equity round. And as, a, as an investor, that, that is great. But that's not what happened. Like 
if you raise one post money cap and then you go raise equity around, like everyone knows exactly what's happened. Both the investor and the entrepreneur are happy because it's clear the thing got done, et cetera. But that's not what's happening today. What's happening today is that people are raising an initial friends and family round on a safe. And then they're raising a pre, like a pre-seed round on a safe. And then they're raising, uh, sometimes they'll raise their seed round on a safe and they're not going to raise their series. A, they're not going to raise their first equity round until like their you know, series A. And what founders don't know is that every note that you raise subsequent to an initial post-money cap safe effectively makes the the dilution of that first cap greater and greater and greater. The terms become more and more punitive because you're upholding this ten, this this post money cap equation essentially for each note. And so I think it's just really, really misleading. Um, I'm actually almost always encouraging founders if if you have the leverage to quote a note, quote it in a pre money safe. At the end of the day, to me, pre money. Cap notes, pre-money cap safes behave like multiple rounds of equity. Like if you were to raise one round of equity and then another round of equity at all step ups, the dilution happens in order, and everyone gets to, everyone knows how the dilution happens. The same thing happens with a pre-money cap note. If you're doing X, Y, and Z, and it each gets stepped up, the dilution happens the way you you would expect equity rounds to to happen. And so, I don't know. We could go on forever, but like. The mislead, there are a few misleading things about it. One, founders aren't told what happens when multiple notes, post money cap notes, post, you know, get raised. And the fact that the headline number of a post money cap note is higher is super misleading. It's like you, you could see some people saying, like, oh, I want a $10 million pre money cap. And then, like, a, a, an investor being like, why don't we do like 12 million post? You went from 10 to 12? Amazing. Uh, yeah, I just won. Like, I see that happen. I'm like, Ugh. anyways, I think if people are trying to be fair about it, great, then everything will work out. But I would, uh, I would just say like, if you can do a pre-money gap note, do a pre-money gap note. Yeah. I guess the other argument is that, I don't know, this is a weak argument, but like, you know, valuations have gotten pretty high. And sure. so at the end of the day, like if it's a pre-money or post-money and it's a super high valuation, but I do think it's misleading from the standpoint of like, I looked at the spreadsheet the other day of the round we're doing, and I was like, okay, if we raise at another post money cap after this, like the share price goes down over yep. here. Yep. It's like people, founders don't do the math. They don't. They don't understand. Is there, that. Is there any online calculators for this? Mm, I, actually, I have a simple one and I just release it. To, anyways, I haven't seen one. I, like, it's really important for people to know this stuff. That's really uh, insightful. And it's important to empower the entrepreneur to understand these things because it's, when you're a first-time entrepreneur or even a second-time entrepreneur, like there's an asymmetry of information and totally. you're, you're not expected to understand all this stuff. When I, when I first got my term sheet, I went to Wikipedia and I started looking up, you know, all these different terms. Cause I just had no idea, you know? Yeah. The other thing is we reference first-time founders all the time, right? Actually more of the founders that I spend time with are repeat founders, second-time founders, because they did it once and they did it really badly. Yeah. And they're like, Man, I don't want to do that again. And the other thing to note is that, like, whether you're a first-time founder or a repeat founder, you do the fundraising thing for like that amount of time, right? Like everything else is about getting better, about like 
operating your company, managing a team, recruiting, all the things that like matter for, for, for eternity. And like you get this one little rep. And you know, I, I draw the sports analogy around fundraising, which is I think you you would appreciate where it's like fundraising is not meant to be this adversarial thing between or a competition or whatever between founders and investors. It's not a sport like that. But if it were, the analogy would be this. Uh, founders like, you know what? I'm going to play this game called baseball. I'm going to read this blog post. I'm like, oh, that's how you do it. Okay, cool. Awesome. I think I can do that. Stepping up to the plate to a major league all-star pitcher that spends all day training on how to you know pitch and to beat batters, essentially. Something that, and they train with other elite players all day doing the same thing. And this one founder is like, yep, I read a blog post. Let me go hit a grand slam now. That is exactly what happens. And I'm like, that asymmetry is just mind-blowing to me. No, that's a great analogy. I need to come up with one for a football uh, <laughs> soccer analogy. Uh, you know, or for the, you know, the Caribbean founders, the baseball baseball heads out there, but I love that. And let's transition to just, you know, Adam Adventures because, man, I really love what you're doing. I mean, this is a great uh, connection that was made uh, through a, a mutual friend, right? Yeah. We connected, I guess, was it like last year or something? Or yeah, maybe? absolutely. Yeah. And I was like, man, this is a guy that I like, you know, I, I really, I'm vibing with because we have similar missions where it's like, let's democratize more access to information. I've gone a little wider and you're, you've gone deep on the fundraising, which Man, I think that having someone like you in their corner is super valuable because you're on the investor side, you're on the entrepreneur side, founder, and there's just so many angles to this, right? And there's all these other things you have to learn. Like you can't just become this like ninja on everything totally. and just like know every single detail. And so the fact that you're you specialize in this, tell me how you why you decided to start Adam Adventures and how would you describe it? What's your pitch? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, Adam Adventures is a firm that is dedicated to make fundraising easier and more accessible to as many founders as possible. And I do that in a lot of different ways. I do it through free content. I do it through inspiration on my podcast, Funded. I do it through cohort-based courses. But look, I mean, I started this because uh, it wasn't like this big grand master plan where like, I'm going to build a big business to do this one thing. I just exited my last company. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I mean, I mean, you know, you know, the struggle of being a startup CEO, right? Startup CEO is like, you're doing all these things you've never done before. And like, I just had this feeling that everything I had been doing as a startup CEO, I, I either hated or I sucked at, or I hated it. And I sucked at it. And like, it's like, a, I mean, look, it's a lot of CEOs go through this, but like it was a grueling period of time. And I was like, you know, and the next thing I want to do, I, I kind of just want to like have expertise and feel like I'm making a difference like every day. And I didn't know what that was going to be. And I didn't actually think this was going to be it. I actually just started by taking more meetings with founders because I still had like remnant deal flow where I had respect in the industry. People are like, look, founders would have problems. They'd be like, oh, you should, you should meet Jason. It's happened since I left Graycroft. Um, but I, you know, I, I, it was, it was the beginning of the pandemic. I couldn't do anything. I, I was like in a room, like locked in a box and I was just very open to taking calls with founders. And whereas I used to be super busy running startups and stuff, and I'd maybe take a call, not prep for it and spend 10 minutes with you and, and be directionally helpful. 
um, or send in like a two line email that again was directionally helpful. I just started being like, well, I have nothing else to do. So if Brian wants to talk, like I'll do a little bit of prep. I'll, I'll read about his company latitude. And then when we get there, I'm going to be really intentional about like seeing how I can help founders. Um, and honestly, after like five calls, just kept getting the same sort of consistent perspective on some of the biggest challenges founders have. And they almost always started with fundraising and it was almost always a really simple fix, at least to put them on a better trajectory around like unlocking some understanding around fundraising. I think once I saw that, um, I was like, man, I, I think I can fix this with this small product. So now I was like, oh, let me just build this tiny little spreadsheet that will like at least structure people's thinking about like what it means to prepare for fundraising. And as I just started spending more and more time in one space, I, I really get a kick out of it is not, it's not the right phrase. I, I I'm really energized by helping people. Um, and like without being overly like altruistic about it, I also just like being good at things and being good at helping people. It, it feels better than being good at like, I don't know, just making money. It's been this kind of now 18 month journey about, about a year to 18 months where I've just spent time focusing on one thing, trying to get better at it, trying to make the concepts that I have in my head more understandable to more people. That's why I like break down things in analogies, illustrations, um, frameworks. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been fun. And I think like that's, that's the passion that's, that's driving me and, and it's kind of like making me build this into something bigger and more impactful. That's awesome, man. I mean, I like the feeling useful for founders. It's, it's motivating, right? I mean, you talked about that importance of like why you're doing things. And I mean, yeah. it feels good, man, to help people and see the impact, right? Like yeah. someone probably calls you like, Jason, man, we like, I got the term sheet and you're like, ah, oh, it's the best feeling. They're like, you, they come away from it and you know, you know exactly the stress they were going through and like to be able to have like led them, lead them through a hard time to give them the support to unlock more than they made it might, maybe could have done it on their own. Like, yeah, it's the best feeling, best feeling. That's, that's so cool. Such a high. Let's wrap up here. I want to ask you last but not least, uh, I heard through the grapevine that you have this Taiwanese scallion pancake <laughs> recipe over here at, at Latitude. We, it's like, we do our, our research here, right? This yeah, is, no, I, I'm impressed. Howard, Howard Stern investigative team. That's what we have. So tell us about that. And given that you're only 26 minutes away from me right now, I mean, you know, like we yeah. got to have a beer in person at least, um, very minimum. So, so close out with this, with this scallion pancake recipe <laughs> and drop it on our audience here. All right. Well, I, I'll let you know that. So I'm Taiwanese and... Out of college, I, I, I moved to Taiwan for six months to essentially avoid starting the real, real world. Um, and while there, like I discovered a version of something that probably people have eaten in many Chinese restaurants, this little flat, like doughy disc called scallion pancake. But Taiwanese version of it is, is different. Like there's a street version of it that's super fluffy. It has, it takes on some like closer to non like qualities. Anyways. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of get obsessive about doing things and <laughs> making things better sometimes. And, um, part of it was like, a a um, a quarantine project, um, that I just wanted to tackle. And I'll tell you this, uh, the ingredients to a scallion pancake are stupidly simple. 
It's like flour and water. Literally, it's, it's, that's the main thing, flour and water. But there are these like variations on the temperature of the water and like the amount of kneading and how much water and all this stuff that like result in crazy different outcomes. Long story short, I solved the problem. I make an incredible scallion pancake. So Brian, if you or any of the listeners can nail me down one of these days, I will make an amazing scallion pancake. Blow your mind. Blow I love that, man. Your you're, mind. You're, you're a man of many recipes. <laughs> recipes, deck recipes. I mean, scallion pancake recipes. I will say at the end here, just to give a nod to my my father who grew up having pancakes every Sunday. So they're not fanciest pancakes, just banana, you know, banana pancakes, whipped cream, walnuts, blueberries, strawberries, some, of course, maple syrup, because you can't have the fake stuff. So I have an appreciation for pancakes, but I like exotic nature of what, you know, the way you describe it, because similar to you, I spent six months avoiding uh, real life, uh, you know, and, tra- and traveling in another country. And, you know, that had a huge impact on me. And so I think it's an important thing for any kind of like someone young that's out of college just to, to kind of experience life. And so it's cool that you came away with that amazing recipe and you keep on passing these other recipes out there. I, I appreciate it. I'm happy to always share my recipes. I am doing my best to open source what I can, but yeah, find me anywhere, hit me up and, and I'll share that recipe and others. How do, how do people get a hold of you? All over the place. I think on social media, if you find me, uh, my handle is J-A-Y-Y-E-H. That's J-A-Y-Y-E-H. Pretty accessible on Twitter. And then my company is Adamant Ventures, adamantventures.com. And my podcast is called Funded. You can find it all on all the platforms or fundedpod.com. Appreciate definitely you letting me worth, plug that. Definitely worth, if you want to take your, your game to the next level, this, this is the guy that has a lot of concentrated knowledge here. And thank you for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Jason Ye, founder of Adam Adventures. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos la thumb. See you next week.